Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Bailout breakthrough. Congress nears a deal on a COVID relief plan. Tracing troubles, South Korea fights a COVID surge and a wing and a prayer. The company was an ethical alternative to farmed chicken. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to all our first movers around the globe. It's a day of holiday hope for U.S. emergency aid and Brexit talks too. Negotiators in both cases seem to be singing from the same hymn sheet, finally. The EU Commission's president says she now sees a path to a trade agreement with the U.K. Fingers crossed in Washington. Meanwhile, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says Congress isn't leaving town without passing relief measures first. A reminder once again today of why help is crucial. Retail sales falling more than 1% last month in the United States as new economic restrictions weigh on business activity and consumers' ability to spend, of course, too. October's numbers also revised to show a negative read then as well. Something Jerome Powell at the Federal Reserve will note at their last news conference of the year later today. And while we wait, of course, take a look at this. Global stocks are pushing higher. U.S. futures looking to add to Tuesday's 1% advance, but a bit softer after the retail numbers. The Dow is above 30,000 once again, however, and the Nasdaq lying at fresh records too. Europe, meanwhile, buoyed, as I mentioned, by those Brexit talks and new data showing resilient business activity so far this month too. German and French factory numbers are back in expansion mode. Japan's factories aren't far behind that either. Something else to watch, though, in Asia airline Cathay Pacific warning of, quote, significantly higher losses in the second half of this year, operating at capacity rates of a mere 8 percent, 8 percent of pre-pandemic levels. Vaccines, as we've been discussing all week, will be a shot in the arm for recovery activity. But until then, of course, it's policymakers who must cushion the blow. Let's get right to the drivers after months of standoff on Capitol Hill. U.S. congressional leaders on both sides expressing confidence that they are nearing a long-awaited deal on new COVID economic relief. While nothing has been finalized, it's expected to include an extension of jobless benefits, loans for small businesses and money for vaccine distribution. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, great to have you with us. Exciting times. Finally, we see light at the end of the tunnel. Senator Joe Manchin was just on air on New Day with our colleagues, uh, Joe and Alison, saying that actually, despite some things being stripped out, it is still going to top $900 billion. What more do we know? 
that's a bigger number, honestly, than I had been um, expecting because Me we know too. that there had been there had been a lot of disagreement about what would be in here. And there's some rumbling this morning that there will be direct payments uh, to American families as well, although not state and local aid. Again, nothing has been finalized. But let's listen to what uh, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin said of, of West Virginia. I mean, he has actual pages in his hands. Listen. I think it's going to be done. I think you're going to hit the deadline and we'll do it and hopefully have it done by Friday. They're moving. Allison, let me just show you the size of what we're dealing with. This is what our bipartisan group worked on over about 600 pages. And <clears throat> we're very happy to be contributing, setting the guidelines of, of how this bill will be put together. I'm sure the language that we've worked on for a long period of time is being used as a basis to work off of. And this will help accelerate everything to get it done. It was a whole wedge. You know, it was quite interesting when we saw them agree that deal so fast back in March. The complexity of the detail and how much has to be gone through in order to agree this. It reminds us why it is so hard to reach an agreement and, and get it signed and get it agreed when you're talking about that much detail, Christine. But we've been saying for months it's necessary. The retail sales data this morning falling, a reminder that yeah. even if they manage to agree this, we're in for a rocky few months. And I think yeah. Jay Powell at the Federal Reserve will reiterate that once again. Do not slip in the final moments. We know it's going to be we know it's going to be a dark winter. It really will be. I mean, you look at the stock market and you don't get get that sense of foreboding. But we know that right now is still incredibly difficult. And those pages that Senator Manchin were holding up is supposed to be the bridge to get us to the other side. I've been calling it more like a life preserver than an actual stimulus. And, and the Biden team has been saying there's probably more that's going to have to be done uh, sometime into the new year. What the Biden team can do um, it will depend, on, I think, on what's going to happen in, in Georgia on January 5th. Those runoff Senate uh, uh, races and who actually controls the Senate. Uh, but but there's this is just such a difficult moment for so many American families, those retail sales numbers really underscoring that. And, you know, you'll hear some people blame the lockdowns and blame lawmakers uh, and governors and, and mayors for lockdowns. But it's the, ri- it's the rising resurgence of the virus that holds back the economy because people just don't have the, the, the want or the need to spend money and behave in normal circumstances when you have a virus that is really out of control like it is right now. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Life preserver. We still need struggling Americans to be pulled yeah. out of the water here. There's going to be more work needed to be done. Christine Romans, thank you for that. All right, on now to Europe, where European governments are implementing tough new measures to try to slow the spread of COVID-19. In London and surrounding areas, new lockdown measures are now underway, while in the Netherlands and Germany also enacting tougher restrictions less than two weeks before Christmas. Fred Pleitgen is in Berlin for us. Fred, and I'm just looking, I know exactly where you are, that street in Berlin. I mean, two weeks (laughs) before Christmas, that would be packed, bustling Mm. with shoppers. And we can see it's it's virtually empty behind you. Yeah, it's, yeah, you're absolutely right. This is Friedrichstraße right in the center of Berlin, which is one of the main shopping areas normally in this city on a regular day. We can pan around a little bit and you can see that it is absolutely empty. All the shops are closed and there's very few people who are out on the streets. I want to show you one thing, Julia, because right behind me, you can see a couple of those little huts. That was what's supposed to be somewhat of a Christmas market because actual Christmas markets, of course, are banned. It's a really sad sight right now. You can see some people actually clearing out their stalls because pretty much all of them are closed. Uh, at the moment. So it's really empty. The shops are all closed. And of course, a lot of these shop owners are extremely concerned. The German government has said that there is going to be financial compensation 
uh, but of course still it's not something that can fully make up for some really good Christmas shopping. And in fact, yesterday, this place was still packed because people were doing last-minute shopping, but now all of that has come uh, to a standstill. And if Germans needed any sort of reminder as to why this national lockdown is, ne- is necessary, certainly came for them this morning when Germany's Center for Disease Control put out numbers saying that they had recorded more than 950 coronavirus deaths or COVID-19 deaths in the span of 24 hours. By far a record, shattering the record that had been there before. At the same time, ICUs in Germany are also getting really full. I want to listen to what one frontline ICU worker has to say about the workload that they're currently facing. You have to ask yourself, what resources do we have left for managing this situation? And if you ask me if we are at a breaking point, then I would say yes. In some hospitals in Saxony, we're already beyond it. So you can see a really tough situation there in German hospitals right now, as we've seen a very high death toll as well. And that's why some of the feedback that I think the German government has been getting about these measures, a lot of people are saying, look, it's tough, but it is also absolutely necessary at this point in time. Just a week before Christmas, having all the shops closed is really a measure that shows just how far Angela Merkel is willing to go to try and get that situation or try and get that situation back under control. This lockdown, by the way, is going to stay in place here in Germany until at least January 10th. But the German government has already said they're obviously going to have to wait and see what the coronavirus situation will be like at that point in time to see whether or not they can really open up again. Julia? Yeah, it's exactly what I was going to ask you because we have seen protests. We've seen them all over Europe, clearly in the United States too, when you enact restrictions or lockdown measures. But Fred, and I think you alluded to it there, do people look at the situation with the hospitalizations and the, the rising cases here and say, OK, it's frustrating, it's painful, it's Christmas, but we get it? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. That's exactly what... what uh, the vast majority of people are saying, and you can see that also in polls here in Germany, for instance, uh, as well, where you have about 60, maybe 65 percent of people who are saying that they believe that the measures that are being put in place are correct. And then there's about 20 percent that say that they want even stricter measures just to try and get the situation under control. But you're absolutely right. Of course, in various European countries, there have been protests against these measures as well. In fact, I remember uh, that uh, shot of Mark Rutte, the prime minister of the Netherlands, when he was uh, announcing the measures that they would put in place, which almost mirror what Germany is doing. And you could hear the protesters in the background uh, who were against these measures being put in place. That's, of course, a vocal minority in some of these countries here in Germany as well. But you can tell that the vast majority of people say that It is painful, but unfortunately, it is also necessary to try and get that situation under control. And of course, especially to try and keep people alive who are vulnerable to severe cases of COVID-19, Julia. Yeah, it's just tough, isn't it? Tough to balance the economy and also try and protect people at the same time. But the, the government has to provide support, as you said at the beginning, and hopefully they will. Fred, great to have you with us. Fred Pleiken there in Berlin for us. All right, Digipan now reporting a new high for the number of patients in intensive care. Nearly 600 people are now in critical care for COVID-19. And in South Korea, a country that had been praised for its dealing and handling of the coronavirus, now sees the highest daily cases since the pandemic began, reporting today nearly 1,100 new infections. The country added military and police to help its overstretched contact tracing system. Paula Hancock's is in Seoul with more details. 
The lunchtime rush at a Seoul restaurant with almost every table taken. One diner tests positive for coronavirus. The search begins for who else may have been infected. It starts with a phone call confirming the patient ID from a health official to an epidemiologist investigator. Mobile phone and credit card checks follow. Lee Yong-uk, a contact tracer, and her colleagues physically retrace the footsteps. The restaurant owner shows where the customer was sitting and shares the CCTV footage. Lee checks who is close by and needs to be warned. The owner and staff have already tested negative. Lee makes at least 10 of these visits a day, rarely finishing work before 9pm. She tells me the person having lunch with a confirmed case is not wearing a mask and is a close contact. He has been contacted, tested and quarantined for 14 days. With hundreds of new cases every day, this work is becoming harder, with many cases now termed as untraceable. If the mobile phone and credit card usage isn't quite enough to gain a full picture, then contact tracers can track an individual's movements here at this CCTV centre. They can find out exactly where a confirmed case went, who they met, and crucially, they say, whether they were wearing a mask. More than 3,000 cameras cover just this one sole district of Socho, normally used for crime prevention, but now a key element in the fight against the coronavirus. The mayor of Socho says the reason this third wave is so difficult to contain is because infections are happening in all cities and districts simultaneously. While the first two waves centred around one or two main outbreaks, health officials now say you can catch the virus at any time in any place. Extra testing sites have been set up around Greater Seoul for the next three weeks, health officials providing free tests for all, regardless of symptoms or exposure. Shipping containers are being used to set up more hospital beds to cope with a feared upcoming lack of rooms for coronavirus patients. And more than 1,300 military personnel have been deployed to health centres in Greater Seoul to help with the legwork and data processing. President Moon Jae-in says this is an emergency situation calling it the final challenge before the vaccines arrive. Paula Hancock's CNN Seoul. And moving on to a trade dispute between two of the biggest players in the Asia-Pacific region that's escalating Australia, referring China to the World Trade Organization over what it calls politically motivated import tariffs. Angus Watson has all the details from Sydney. Australia is launching formal action against China as its relationship with its largest trading partner continues to sour. In May, China slapped 80% tariffs on Australian barley. Now Australia is asking the World Trade Organization to investigate whether that was an economic move, as China insists, or a political one. Barley is not the only Australian product that China has had in its sights this year, with blocks on Australian seafood, beef and coal, and added tariffs on wine too. On Wednesday, Trade Minister Simon Birmingham said that the suite of measures seemed like sanctions. Australian industry should see this as being about Australia, defending the values, operation and interests of Australian producers, but doing so in a calm, methodical and careful manner. The two-way relationship has been deteriorating since April when Australia asked for an independent inquiry into the origins of COVID-19. China says it only conducts its trade relationships based on the interests of its businesses and its consumers and that Australia was dumping cheap product onto the market. 
But China has also criticised Australia for weighing in on rights issues in Hong Kong and Xinjiang and barring Chinese tech firm Huawei from the rollout of its 5G network. Speaking Wednesday, Minister Birmingham said the WTO process could take years, but he is hoping that other countries would come on board to try to force China to handle its trade relationships differently. In the very short term, Australian consumers are looking forward to a holiday season with cheaper produce. Lobsters are selling at half price at some supermarkets here after they were earmarked for trade with China. In the longer term, however, China's actions could mean a big hit to Australia's economy. Angus Watson in Sydney, Australia. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. A record number of patients were hospitalized with COVID-19 in the United States on Tuesday at more than 112,000 people. It's the 14th consecutive day the country has remained above the 100,000 mark. At the same time, hundreds of hospitals are now administering the vaccine from Pfizer and BioNTech. The U.S., meanwhile, investigating whether Boko Haram is behind the kidnapping of more than 300 schoolboys in Nigeria last week. A man identifying himself as the leader of the terrorist group released an audio tape claiming responsibility. In the recording, which CNN has not been able to verify, he said the attack was to discourage, quote, Western education. The Kremlin responding to CNN's exclusive investigation with Bellingcat into the poisoning of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. The Russian foreign minister said reports about the details surrounding Navalny's poisoning are, quote, funny to read. But he didn't directly address the investigation, which found that elite Russian agents had tracked Navalny for years. All right, so to come here on First Move, people may not have travelled much this year, but money certainly has. The pandemic drives a surge in cross-border payments at MoneyGram. The CEO joins us to explain. And lab-grown chicken. Yes, Singapore is the first country to approve meat derived from animal cells. We speak to the company behind the science. Stay with us, there's more to come. Welcome back to First Move Live from New York, where investors are bracing for a powerful winter storm headed towards the East Coast later today. As much as a foot of snow is forecast and trading activity may be affected tomorrow, but that's not today. And for now, futures are mostly high, despite that weaker than expected read on U.S. retail sales. Sales actually dropped by greater than expected 1.1% last month. October's retail sales also coming in negative two after a revision lower Meanwhile, business activity is showing resilience this month in Europe. The euro hitting more than a two-year high on the new data and the pound also rallying on Brexit deal hopes too. Meanwhile, in the United States, the Federal Reserve could offer guidance on its monetary stimulus path later today. Fed Chair Jay Powell speaks as negotiators in Washington inch closer to a deal on fresh fiscal aid. Don't be surprised if Jay Powell once again urges D.C. negotiators to finally seal a deal. Mark Zandi joins us now. He's the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. So Mark, great to have you with us. And you're another person urging Congress to take action. Essential that they provide more cash to prevent a double-dip recession, surely. 
Absolutely, Julie. I think that's critical. I've been waiting for this for some time. I thought the, I the lawmakers would get it together before the election, made good economic sense, and I, and I thought good political sense. But hey, I, you know, I'm just an economist, so you know, who knows what's going on in the minds of uh, lawmakers. But yeah, it feels like they're getting it together here, and we'll sign on the dotted line before the end of the week. And absolutely necessary. You know, you saw today's retail sales numbers. The job numbers are looking softer. The economy is definitely struggling needs help, and, and hopefully law, lawmakers will, in fact, uh, follow through here. I mean, I was looking at some of your um, the details in your note from this week, and you were saying even just the message from the business sector, less than a fifth of respondents saying that conditions were good at this stage. I mean, traditionally, you would be looking at this and saying it kind of feels recessionary, that the messages were already there. Yeah, uh, we, we've been running this survey every week uh, since the early 2000s, and you know, so we have a lot of data points and have seen it go up and down uh, around uh, the financial crisis. And every time uh, the percentage of respondents say that present business conditions, what's happening right now on the ground, are not good, uh, that's consistent with recession. And we're right on the on the border there. So, uh, you know, according to that survey, if that uh, still holds, uh, the, the economy is struggling to stay out of recession and desperately needs that help. Uh, I, again, I'm getting more optimistic about this. Uh, I think we will get that support. Uh, and if we do, we'll shoot, it'll be a, a tough two, three, four months until the vaccine really becomes more widely distributed and the, and the pandemic starts to abate. But we'll avoid that recession if we get that package. How tough is it going to be? Because when I look at some of the numbers here, we've got potentially 12 million people, at least short term, even if this deal gets agreed, slipping by a week, two weeks, three weeks until that money kicks in again, their pandemic benefits. You point out we've got more than 11 million renters that are still going to owe $70 billion on the other side of the rent moratorium in January. So even if that gets extended, that's a lot of debt. There's a lot of people that have been significantly beaten up through this process financially. And that has to weigh on economic activity, surely, even as the vaccines kick in and activity returns. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you can feel it. I mean, you can feel it in the job numbers. You can feel it in today's retail sales numbers. I mean, uh, f- folks, lower income generally, minority groups, uh, they've been uh, hammered. Uh, you know, unemployment is still very, very high by any standard. Underemployment is high. And even if people have held on to their jobs and their hours, their pay has been cut. Uh, so they're struggling. And uh, you're, uh, you're right, in a, in a couple of weeks, all that unemployment, uh, extra unemployment insurance benefits that were uh, provided by uh, lawmakers earlier in the pandemic, that's all gone. Uh, the re- rental eviction moratoria that's been in place in recent months, that'll expire at the end of the year. Uh, you know, student loan borrowers, uh, they've had a moratorium on um, payments in recent months. Uh, they'll have to start paying by the end of January. So, you know, even if Congress comes through and the president signs and we get that package, you know, for these households, you know, for the, you know, through Christmas into New Year's, you know, into late January, th- these are going to be particularly difficult months because they're, they're just not going to have the resources. In, in fact, there's, you know, uh, survey data coming from census, uh, you know, uh, showing that, you know, half of all renters who aren't making their rental payments are now relying on money from their friends and family to kind of make it uh, their way through on spending needs. So that just gives you a sense of the stress. Mm, it does. Investors are going to look through this because, as you, you pointed out at the beginning of this conversation, vaccines are coming. So there's a good time coming, even if it's a good time coming, quite frankly. Um, 
But we have to get there. Jay Powell has to negotiate the fact that we should see a resurgence in activity, but they've got trillions of dollars of stimulus out there and more coming. How does Jay Powell play this or does he continue to focus on the risks here and the short term winter and trouble that we've got to deal with in the short term versus a recovery that could happen quite quickly as vaccines kick in? Yeah, I, I think Jay Powell, chair of the Fed, has to continue to focus on the downside risks so, because, you know, obviously, uh, you know, it's a, still a very much a forecast that we're going to get that vaccine out there. People are going to uh, take it and that the, the pandemic is going to wind down. It feels like a, a good forecast. And as you point out, investors have bought into it. But, you know, in, until we actually see it, I think uh, it would be prudent for policymakers to guard against uh, that downside. And so I think he's going to be uh, saying the same thing he's been consistently saying for months. And he's saying to the to pol- lawmakers that, look, it's pretty hard to err on the side of doing too much here. Uh, the, the real error is going to be on the side of not doing enough. So, you know, s- step on it, uh, but put your foot on that accelerator and let's get going here and make sure we get to the other side of the pandemic as well as gracefully as we can get to the other side of this pandemic. Yeah, I'd love to hear Jay Powell say that. Step on it, guys. Mark Zandi. <laughs> We all feel the same. Thank you so much for that. Chief that's definitely not bed speak, that's for sure. No, yeah. I was about to say, yeah, it wouldn't be for long if you did. <laughs> the chief right. economist at Moody's Analytics. Great to have you with us, as always. All right, the opening bell's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Wednesday, and as expected, a mostly higher open than Nasdaq at new records. Just the Dow having a think about what to do today. Stocks weakening a little after the negative reads on U.S. retail sales for both October and November, as we've been discussing. Apple, meanwhile, in the spotlight once again, rallying 5% yesterday amid reports that it's ramping up iPhone production, a sign, of course, of strong demand. Apple shares now up 74% year to date. Speaking of rallies, it's another milestone day for Bitcoin, too, rising above that $20,000 level for the first time ever. Bitcoin's gains this year now approaching 200%. Wow. MoneyGram is one of the U.S.'s leading payment companies. It allows customers in over 200 countries to send and receive money across borders. MoneyGram's business has surged during the pandemic, too. The number of cross-border payments in November was more than double the level seen a year ago, while MoneyGram's digital business has seen 11 months of triple-digit growth. Joining us now, Alex Holmes, chairman and CEO of MoneyGram International. Alex, always a pleasure to have you on the show. I remember... A year ago, when we were talking about your three key initiatives, it was digital transformation, it was the work with Visa Direct, and it was what you were doing with Ripple, the payments platform, whose CEO was recently on the show. Talk to me about the digital transformation first, because some of these numbers are eye-opening in terms of growth. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for having me back. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Uh, it really has been uh, an absolutely remarkable uh, couple of years for, for MoneyGram, and, and certainly what we've seen uh, throughout 2020 has been uh, nothing short of remarkable. As you said, the uh, performance of our digital business has been uh, just absolutely amazing. And you know, even prior to the onset of the pandemic, we were seeing uh, phenomenal returns uh, on that business with uh, increasing customers uh, utilizing our app, increasing downloads. Uh, increasing throughput and expansion, of course, into a number of markets with uh, with our online services. But uh, ever since 
uh, the pandemic has kicked in, we've really seen just complete resilience in that business and a continued acceleration. As you said, 11 consecutive months of triple digit cross border growth, 136 uh, percent in the month of November. Uh, and it's really uh, been driven by uh, that utilization and convenience of, of mobile technology, uh, the simplicity of the throughput uh, and the ease of which consumers are finding uh, digital applications, uh, particularly during the pandemic when, you know, stay at home orders or shelter in place orders have really restricted their movement and their ability to get out and, and do what they might normally have done. What proportion of the customers are now using digital platforms? versus before. Yeah. I mean, just give us a sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in the U.S., we've, we've actually uh, roughly doubled uh, the, the uh, output through our uh, online platform as compared to our walk-in business. So U.S. outbound wow. Uh, wow. is really driving uh, tremendous over the past year. Um, about 27% of our, of our global business today is digital, but that's, of course, against the backdrop of uh, really, you know, 200 countries that we operate in and only about 80 of those really digitized today. So uh, when you look at it um, kind of on a more isolated basis, that percentage is, is even higher. Uh, and as I mentioned, you know, the U.S. is, is a great uh, example of that, that we're really seeing um, a surge in, in consumers looking for uh, that online application and the, and the ease of use and the convenience of it. We're also seeing an increase in face value sent on a per transaction basis, and that's even throughout the pandemic. And so you're definitely seeing the resiliency of, of the consumer base uh, and then the, uh, the ease and convenience of, of the online um, application. And we're, we've seen about 140% increase uh, in new customers uh, on, the, on the online platform. We've seen a 220% increase in transactions through our app. So across the board, simply remarkable returns. And uh, we're very, very happy with uh, that performance. Yeah, and it's not just about remittances, though. I do want you to tell me what you've seen in terms of, of remittances, because when you see a struggle in the economy and people losing jobs in, in one country, you'd assume they send less money home. But I, I know it's the opposite. Just again, just explain what you've seen in terms of, of people perhaps sending more money back to uh, foreign nations rather than less, despite the economic strife. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a great point, and and it's one that's certainly counterintuitive to what many people expected, uh, particularly early on in in the pandemic. There was expectations that we would see remittances drop uh, globally, and certainly we saw that you know right at the start of the pandemic when the real shelter in place restrictions kicked in. Um, since really the back end of April and into May, uh, we've seen just a resurgence in remittances. We did a survey recently of 1,500 uh, of our customers uh, here in the U.S. with 80% of them saying that um, they feel that their friends and family back home are uh, more in need now than they've ever been before. 70% of our customers saying that they uh, have sent more home in 2020 than they, they have before. And I think that's really reflective of the responsibility that a lot of uh, our customers and migrants take on. Um, when they leave their home country in the first place, the uh, reliance on the, the support that they send back. And so you see many uh, consumers um, finding more work, moving around. And obviously, unemployment is up in a number of areas, clearly hospitality, service, restaurants, et cetera, right. um, the cruise industry. Uh, but when you look at you know the resilience of food processing, agriculture, uh, the stability in some cases of, of construction and other type industries, um, you know, our, our, our customers figure it out. They also have, tend to have a higher propensity for saving as well uh, as compared to perhaps a normal um, or, or, you know, regular U.S. citizen. And so they're able to tap into some of those savings as well and really hold back on their own expenses to, to send money back. 
um, we are seeing an increase in face value sent per transaction and an increase in transaction growth um, across the board. So it really is um, a very different outcome than I think many people uh, expected. And of course, there is concern about sustainability of that. Obviously, uh, right. stimulus is helping from cases and these types of things. But clearly, um, as the as the pandemic has moved along, uh, we really haven't seen a slowdown um, at all in uh, in their sending uh, habits. And so that's been very nice to see. Yeah, I mean, you, you raise a great point about sustainability, though, but we've obviously got another package coming through from Congress, fingers crossed. Um, let's talk about fraud, Alex, because I know this is something that you feel very passionately about and seeing more rigorous identification standards. The question for me is, why is there pushback from certain quarters on this? I know this is something ID requirements that you've had in place since, what, 2018. What do you want yeah. to see? Well, I'd like to see a continued push for... Um, consistency uh, on that. And and I think that some of the new proposals that have come out from FinCEN have have really pushed in that direction. You know, we, we generally see in our, our business about, you know, $350 on average sent home. A lot of the ID requirements, a lot of the uh, data collection requirements here in the United States, I think lag standards that we see in other markets around the world. And what they're proposing is in many cases to push those requirements down uh, for the data collection and obviously the the single biggest argument that you get back tends to be oh it's going to create cost it's going to create um you know mm. pricing that we're gonna have to push on to the to the consumers but i think that discounts for the fact that scams and fraud continue to be on the rise and you know are it really cost uh, individual consumers and the you know the economy itself billions of dollars every year uh, and so that really needs to be addressed and pushed out. We did put in our ID standards and data collection standards uh, at the point of sale at dollar one back in 2018. Uh, and a lot of our competitors really sold against us on that, saying that the restrictions were, were too tight and it was going to cause damage to the business. And here we are two years later with some more remarkable growth um, and actually have the lowest fraud rates in the industry. And we've really been able to push that down and out of our business. And at a time when scams and fraud are at you know, its highest peak, really, um, in, in the United States history, we actually are pr producing some of the lowest uh, and the lowest, actually, that we've ever seen. And so I yeah. think it shows the standards work and they can actually be implemented in a way that allow you to continue to grow and accelerate your business without actually passing those costs on to customers because we've actually been lowering prices over the past couple of years yeah, while doing should, that. There should be no excuse. I want to talk to you about Ripple as well while I have you, uh, the payments network, because we recently had uh, CA Brad on our show and he was talking about this provision of, of the global liquidity arrangement, the, the sort of transition that they're going through as the business. Your side of the, the partnership or the arrangement was focused more on the settlement uh, of payments. I just wonder how that partnership has evolved over the last year and how you see it progressing. Sure, absolutely. We've been um, partnering with Ripple now for about 18 months. And the idea behind that was for us was to really push innovation and see how we could help, uh, you know, in the pioneering of the expansion of global utilization of, of blockchain. And we've been doing that, as you say, for settlement, for treasury management, really FX management services. And the ability to, you know, send money cross border is really um, you know, affected by our ability to actually settle real time. You know, our customers are looking for real time payouts. Uh, and so the money has to be there uh, really before the transactions even initiated, if you think about it. And so uh, for us, you know, having access to liquidity, improving speed of transaction and, and throughput is really what 
um, I think can be transformative for our industry, our business in particular in, in the coming decade. And, you know, Ripple is doing a lot of unique things with blockchain, with with crypto to to help drive that. And uh, it's been a, been a very nice partnership. We've obviously learned a lot together uh, and continue to push, uh, I think, really push the uh, the boundaries of, of what can be. And uh, it's been it's been a lot of fun for sure. Yeah, it's fascinating to watch. Alex, great to have you on the show. As always, I've got 20 more questions I want to ask you, but we'll get you back soon. Thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, chairman, it. Thank you so much. Great to have you on, Chairman and CEO of MoneyGram International there. Thank you. All right, still ahead, the feature of meat or time to chicken out. We meet the CEO bringing science to supper time. Welcome back to First Move. Our next story might sound like something out of a science fiction novel, but in a year where stranger things have happened, it's very much science fact. You'll soon be able to buy meat in Singapore that was grown in a lab. It's not to be confused with plant-based meat substitute. This is meat from the cells of an animal, a chicken in this case, turned into an actual piece of chicken. The US-based startup Eat Just has pioneered this and co-founder and CEO Josh Tetrick joins us now. Wow, Josh, when I read about this, I I actually didn't believe it was true, but just looking at what you do now, I, I realize it is. Just explain the process and how you came up with this idea. Well, it's uh, it's very much true. We're taking the best of meat, which is nutrition, the taste, and we're getting rid of the worst of meat, which is the environmental issues, mm. the food safety issues, mm. the treatment of the animals. And Julia, we think this is going to be the future of meat. So are you targeting poultry or meat eaters in in this case? Or are you also perhaps targeting vegetarians as well that don't eat meat for ethical reasons? Like you said, it's it can also be seen as pretty disgusting the way that these animals are treated. Well, I think if you're a vegan or vegetarian, philosophically, you're not eating meat because of what you said, the way the animals are treated or the fact that um, about a third of the world's ice free land, if you can believe it, is dedicated to growing soy and corn to feed the animals we eat. So instead of biodiverse rainforests, we have fields and fields and fields of chicken feed. So um, if vegans and vegetarians are not eating meat because of that, um, this is definitely the meat for them. But maybe even more importantly, this is the meat for people that really enjoy meat. You know, we're an imperfect species, <laughs> we do even with all the issues. So if you love chicken, if you love beef, this is for you. Does it taste any different from ordinary chicken? and texture, everything's the same. So usually when people try it, they're surprised uh, because it doesn't taste like uh, a better version of chicken or a worse version of chicken. It just tastes like <laughs> tastes chicken. Like chicken. Uh, because <laughs> Funny it, that. Because it, because it is. It has a nutritional composition of chicken because it is. It tastes like chicken because it is. What it doesn't have is all the greenhouse gas emissions. What it doesn't have is um, the elements that lead to increased probabilities of zoonotic disease. What it doesn't have is the, you know, real morality issues that we have with killing 67 billion chickens every single year. We need to build a food system that's a lot closer to uh, aligning with the best of us. Um, and we think this is a part of it. I'm just trying to look at the pictures while you're talking as well to get a sense of, of what it looks like. It just looks, I guess, you can shape it any way you choose to. 
So yeah, the process is we get a cell from a chicken or a cow, and then we identify nutrients to feed that cell. So think about a chicken's eating soy and corn or nuts and berries. And those amino acids and the nutrients in the berries of the soy and corn allow the chicken to grow and they're slaughtered after about 47 days. Well, we take the cell, we identify nutrients, same kind of nutrients, and then we manufacture the meat um, in a very clean, safe way in a bioreactor. It's a culturing process. It's not that dissimilar from how you would culture food or how you would brew beer. Um, the end result is meat um, without all the, the issues uh, facing it. Um, people call it cultivated meat or no-kill meat or cultured meat. Uh, but what people shouldn't call it anymore is lab-grown meat, because with this historic approval that Singapore has provided, right. Um, right. the historic first sale that we had, this is no longer about the lab, right? This is about serving consumers in restaurants. It's about manufacturing in a large scale. Um, and we think this is how the vast majority of meat will be made and, uh, and eaten in the coming decades. Okay, so Singapore's clearly on the front foot here saying we approve, let's get it into restaurants and see what people think. Talk to me about scaling up. How quickly do you think we can see this on the shelves in the United States or across Europe? Talk about your plans for Eat Just as a business. So what's exciting about this approval, um, we can actually scale up now. Um, absent right. approval, instead of make things for uh, me and my team members and my friends. So now for the first time, we can actually <laughs> scale up. So the plan, is, the plan is to really invest in Singapore because this is the only place in the world that's presented a regulatory approval. Um, but next is to, to work with regulators in the U.S., FDA uh, and the USDA to work with regulators uh, in Western Europe. And we've already seen, Julia, that um, regulators are influenced by other regulators. Policymakers are influenced by other policymakers. Um, the world might not necessarily want Singapore to own the future of food. Um, Singapore has really taken a big step uh, in doing that. But we want to scale up first in Singapore in 2021. We're going to be investing quite a bit of capital in that manufacturing process. Uh, we eventually want to launch beef. Um, and then eventually we want to bring this to the Euro uh, to Western Europe uh, and U.S. But more long term, um, I want us to live in a world where my niece, who's a year and a half old now, when she enters high school, I want the majority of beef, chicken, lamb, eggs, milk, you name it, to not require killing a single animal, to not require tearing down a single tree, to not require a single drop of antibiotics. That's going to be a better world. Yeah, I'm with you, Josh. Amazing. Fascinating concept. Stay in touch. I know you've got some whopping great investors as well. Uh, Lika Shing, the Singapore State Investor, of course, Temasek as well. So I'm sure a lot of people will watch this and already be talking to you. Stay in touch. We'll watch your progress. Josh Tetrick there from Eat Just. Thank you for joining us on the show. All right. After the break, normally we see Tom Cruise diffusing bombs. But this time he's in the news for dropping an F-bomb. Hear his emotional plea, and it all relates to social distancing. And in this, we're on Team Tom. Stay with us, we're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. The actor Tom Cruise reportedly scolding crew members on the set of Mission Impossible 7 near London for violating social distancing rules. British newspaper The Sun posted leaked audio clips saying Cruise was furious about the breach, delivering an expletive-filled rant. Max Foster joins us now with, Ma with more. Max, you may be surprised to know I'm not actually in favour of diva rants, but when I read this story, I was like, I am Team Tom all the way. 
talk about what happened here. Well, it's interesting because when people listen to the tape, a lot of people do feel that he's got quite a point here. Um, we haven't got the tape, we haven't got access to that, but this all happened uh, during the filming of Mission Impossible 7 at Leavesden, just outside London. It's Paramount Pictures production. So they were in charge at the time, and the Sun managed to get hold of this tape, which they say is off the set. You hear Tom Cruise scolding members of the crew, basically, <clears throat> for not sticking to the uh, social distancing guidelines here in the UK. So you hear him saying, uh, a word of warning, there is an expletive in here. I don't ever want to see it again, ever. And if you don't do it, you're fired. If I see you doing it again, you're effing gone. And if anyone in this crew does it, that's it. The two crew members uh, in question here are apparently seen within two metres around six feet of each other, which is against the UK COVID guidelines. He goes on to say, though, Julia, we are the gold standard. Uh, they're, back, uh, they're back there in Hollywood making movies right now because of us, because they believe in us and what we're doing. And he says they're creating thousands of jobs, that people are struggling to put food on the table to pay for college tuition fees. And he's got some um, record on this as well, because earlier in the production, whilst they were filming in Italy, the whole production had to be halted for a while because of the coronavirus pandemic. And Tom Cruise actually spent more than $600,000 of his own money, reportedly, um, on getting a ship so the cast and crew could isolate. It's something he clearly feels very strongly about. And, you know, you've been converted to what he was doing here. A lot of people on social media, other actors actually feel that he's doing the right thing because the industry, like so many industries, is under pressure right now. We've tried to get hold of Cruz's publicists and Paramount Pictures. They're not uh, returning uh, comments to us right now, but we do know that the New York Times got hold of Paramount Pictures. They declined any comment for any, to give any comment to them. Also, just to point out that the studios in Leavesden are run by Warner Brothers, which is part of you know, the umbrella that we come under, of course, Julia. Yes, we have to mention all the uh, the caveats and the notes at the bottom. And this is not free advertising of, of the movie, of course. Um, you know, I, I think I read actually that this production had been shut down twice in the past, actually. So he knows the cost every single day. And of course, we talk about this on the show all the time. This is an industry that's been severely disrupted. Movies have been pushed back. The cost of just not following the rules here, massive for, for individuals involved. Um, yeah, Max, maybe less F words next time, but um, I think we're sort of with the sentiment. <laughs> yeah, might have helped. Yeah, yeah. Max, great to have you with us. Max Foster there. And that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe and we'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.